Well, hello and welcome to the Mariner podcast with me, Chris Stamwell Major. Well, I guess I'll get my little cup of coffee sorted out here. I've brought a thermos this time and uh, tell you a little bit about what's been going on. I guess first off, I need to apologize. You know, we were on our, what, our 10th date there. We spent some time together. We shared some stories. We'd started to get to know each other and then I just, I just disappeared. I, it's not you, it's me. I, well, Actually, that's completely true. Um, I guess I've got a little confession to make, and I guess, uh, yeah, I'll just talk it through here, and you tell me in the comments if you if you kind of get where I'm coming from. I, I think things are very different at the moment because of COVID-19. You know, suddenly, whatever you were doing before, basically that stopped unless you're a key worker. Um, everybody is experiencing it at some level or another, not being able to see family, not being able to work in the normal way. And that means uh, there's big changes afoot. For me personally, I've gone from uh, running a company which is doing, you know, we should be in Mexico right now, uh, having done a, a regatta out of, uh, out of St. Petersburg with the Open 60 and the Volvo 60. Um, then we should be looking to sail up the coast and go to Newport and do the um, the, the testing for the Newport Bermuda to get the stability sorted out and stuff and then back to Nova Scotia and blah, 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 blah. But obviously the shortcut of it all is uh, none of that's happening. So I've gone from living in a world where I do what I do on a daily basis to suddenly populating this new space where I'm attempting to take something that I used to do, i.e. the media and the YouTube videos and podcasts and that, and turning it into what I do. And I got to say, there's a part of me that's very, very excited about it, but just as equally, you know, I'm making mistakes while I'm doing it. And the primary mistake is one that I made uh, in the last couple of weeks. Um, what I started to do is I started to move the podcast away from being audio only and make it into uh, something I was putting on YouTube as well. And I think some people have enjoyed that, but... Um, it immediately started to create a, a problem where doing the podcast, which was joyful and fun before, suddenly was looking like it was going to be a massive hassle every time. So if you're doing a podcast, I, you know, it's a bit of a strange thing anyway, because you're basically sitting down and deciding that you're so enamored with the sound of your own voice that you're just going to sit in an empty room <laughs> and talk to a piece of technology. Luckily, I have quite a lot of experience of doing this with one thing or another, doing documentaries on boats and interviews and all the rest of it. So I don't mind too much. And that, uh, and obviously I'm happy to sit and chat. Anyone that's been on watching me will know that. But uh, what I had forgotten is where the output of my efforts with the podcast go. I was looking at it as just being a product, like, okay, I have to try and get a whole new business going, so I'm gonna use YouTube and podcasts and Facebook and all this stuff. And I forgot something very, very important about podcasts, that the relationship between me sitting here and my life and what I'm doing and the relationship between you and what you're doing is totally different from any other form of social media. As uh, a number of people have reminded me in the last couple of days when I've asked for feedback on this, you could be out walking the dog, um, as my friend Doug Ferrand has uh, pointed out, that's where he listens to his podcasts, or you could be out running or um, training for triathlons and running, as another friend John Healy's pointed out, but you take a podcast with you, whereas a YouTube uh, event you've got to sit down and you've got to be there and whilst you can put the mouse down for a second and watch what's going on with a podcast you put it in your pocket and then i kind of accompany you uh on your way doing things and i think i lost uh i, I lost focus of that and um it started to become a hassle doing the podcast because I was looking at the fact that I had to then edit all the video and I've got to put all the pictures in and I've got to put the titles in and that takes forever. Like literally editing, if I edit a, I don't know, 20 minute video, it probably takes like six hours. Now that's based also on the fact that my limited uh, editing skill is what I'm relying on. But also if you want to get it right and you know do the best you can, that's the amount of time it takes. You've got to go online and find images that you can use and not worry about the copyright and get the music sorted out and then render it and all this stuff. And the difference is with the podcast, we just sit down together 
and we just talk and I tell you, you know, what's going on in my life and then through comments and, and feedback, I find out what's going on in yours and we have this moment we can just chat and hang out. So yeah, I apologize for kind of disappearing there. I made it too complicated. I was, a couple of people said to me, you know, do you not listen to podcasts? Do you not know the answer to your own question? Should it be on YouTube or not? And I remembered that the times when I've listened to podcasts is when um, I've been on my own on the boats and I've listened to audiobooks and I've listened to podcasts and I've listened to even I had family members and friends uh, sending me audio files uh, of them talking and basically you remember the old days when we used to write letters together and they were just chatty letters and they were you know they were part of your life to kind of receive these things from people what I would do is I've got somewhere a tape that my mother sent me in about 1996 um, I have a lot of stuff which is in storage in Hong Kong which I don't know if I'll ever see again because the storage bill is so massive that I'm not sure I could ever actually get it back but pretty much everything that I owned before uh, I was 38 is all in storage in Hong Kong <laughs> everything I've got here is all brand new bar a few things I brought with me to Canada and things that I got from the UK when I went back and and uh, spent time with my mum there before she passed away so uh, but that tape when I think about that now I think what that emotionally means to me I re I remember how important the spoken word is and the connection that um, that can build up between people so um, I will make this simple and I will keep it on uh, audio only and on uh, the podcast as a, as, a, as a thing which happens in a unique space and then we can do other things on YouTube and, uh, and worry about bright colors and uh, the fact that people only have an attention span of five or ten seconds. So okay so that's my initial diatribe on uh, <laughs> it's not you it's me. So what am I doing and where am I, I guess, if we're going to be like that about it? Um, well, if you've been watching any of this stuff on the uh, on Facebook feed and stuff like that, or, um, I built an entire like creator space for myself. That's where a lot of my effort has gone the last couple of weeks while I've been away. Across from my house here in Nova Scotia, there's a, uh, a barn which is about 100, 150 years old. It's got big uh, six by six inch timbers and uh, a barn board that's visible from the inside. If you live in Europe, basically these North American style barns are everything you ever imagined an old barn should look like. Have you ever seen the Waltons or something like that? It's it's the barn from the Waltons. It's um, 40 foot by 30 foot and uh, it is rough hewn and you couldn't... You couldn't design it to look like this. Now, what I've done is that it was completely empty when I first moved to the house, and we don't own it. It's owned by uh, farmers that uh, are across the way. But the barn was part of the house originally. And then what I understand is that I think in the 70s sometime, the farmer's barn burnt down. So the people that had the house at that time sold or gave them this barn so that they could keep on trucking. But it's directly across a very narrow kind of country road from from my house, or just maybe, you know, two cars every hour kind of road. So very clearly when they uh, built up this area, the road came into this property. It was the first property on the island. And then the road went off and out of the farmyard. And over the years that's been tarmac. So the kind of, the road now passes between the barn and the house, but it's built in the same fashion as the house. The house we think was built in the 1850s, which is considered pretty old around here. Um, <clears throat> and it's an incredibly, well, a kind of inspiring space, I guess. You know, as I as I sit here now at the little red table in the corner and, and look out at what I've kind of created here, my efforts are overlaid onto, firstly, a working environment, which I know it was a hayloft and the, the tractor came in here and they had cows in here and stuff for years and years. And then I've overlaid this weird veneer of kind of modern technology and, and sailing and, and my life over the top of it, um, certainly in uh, about half of it. And um, now I have this, I say, kind of inspiring creator space where there's a bit of a, a desk and there's a coffee machine and somewhere to sit. And I, what I've done basically is that 
um, a year or so ago, we closed the office that we had. When we started Spartan as a charter company, we initially started off having an office and people that worked for us in the, you know, in our locale here in in, uh, in Nova Scotia. And um, that's where we did the admin. And then over time, as you become more educated, you realize that pretty much every task that you need to do, you can actually do it online. And so we moved to doing that. And now we work with Sail Race crew in Holland that do all our bookings and everything. So there was no need for the office, which was a bit of a pity as we put a huge amount of effort into it. Um, and we're very proud of what we'd uh, put together. But all the furniture from it basically just went into the container. And then from there went into this barn just being used as a storage area. So I think the thing that I'm most excited about with this space is that I have I have just moved things around inside this barn like pretty much everything that is here uh, yeah pretty much everything that's here literally oh no there's some things here now from Falcon I brought here okay so I'll take that back but the bare bones of what's here is literally just everything from inside this barn moved around uh, into a different configuration and yet it's so much better it's like a study in what you can achieve if you put some hard work into it. All of the office stuff was in storage downstairs in an area, which is where the, I think the cows were, which literally I just swept the, you know, 10 years, 20 years dried cow poo, basically, into a corner and then just put all the furniture in there. We were strapped for storage space. It was a simple option. It's nice and dry. And in it went. And then I was using the middle of the barn downstairs for a bit of a workshop for the car and put my bench there and stuff. And then the, the, if you divide the bottom floor of the barn into thirds, one third's got the office in storage, one third's got a car in there and a little bit of a bench. And then the other one's got the farmer's old tractor that, they, you know, unfortunately the farmer himself died, I think, eight years ago. So everything in here has been unused for eight years. And then upstairs is one big open area, which had just loads of crap. There's like... Um, tractor tires and uh what else is there like old galvanized pots and pans and they had a raspberry farm so there's like a thousand of those little um wooden punnets for raspberries and then there's galvanized pipes and uh and all, all sorts of things everything you can possibly imagine but it, and then oh dust like you wouldn't believe because previous to them storing stuff up here it was a hayloft so I decided to make this space. I knew that I had to adapt to this new situation with COVID. I knew that I wasn't going back out in the water. So I got all of that crap on the upper floor and I stuffed it into one third of the upper uh, area. And then I took over the middle and one side and really tied it up. And then I got everything out of storage and had to bring my truck. I've got a Chevy Avalanche, a 2003 Chevy Avalanche. There you go, that's a blast from the past. But I did buy it in Miami a couple of years ago. Um, a typical story for me. Here you go, tangents. You all say you like the tangents. So I come to uh, uh, meet my wife one day after something. I say, oh, would you like to go on holiday to Miami? And she goes, well, yeah, that sounds great. It's not like we ever take holidays. I'm like, yeah, I'm thinking of going this Friday. <laughs> and this is like on the Wednesday. She's like, what? I'm like, yeah, well, I, uh, I saw this vehicle for sale. She's like, uh, okay, what's this about? So I say, well, look, here's the plan. Go down on the Friday night, uh, go and pick up this vehicle, and then drive back. Now, bear in mind from here, it's like, it's thousands, and th I think, is it 3,000 kilometers to Miami from Nova Scotia? Someone correct me if I'm wrong, but it's a very long way. And, um, but, you know, bless her, she did say, okay, uh, all right, let's do it. So we got cheap flights down there, went to the, uh, to the yard where this, got literally a taxi out to this, um, the sail yard uh, in, some wrong side of the tracks area of Fort Lauderdale. I actually lived in Fort Lauderdale for a while, so I know damn well it was on the wrong side of the tracks. And uh, got there and the car was, well, it was a truck, it was an F-150, it was an absolute pig. It was such a mess, so like, uh-oh. I see my wife looking at me like, you've just got us, it's boiling hot, we're in Miami, we have no accommodation booked, we've literally got two roll-along suitcases with us, we've been dragging down the side of this highway trying to find this car lot, and now we've got here, and this car is a pup. So I'm like, hey, no problem, you sit in this guy's office, now this area has got like loads of different car yards all around, like they're up and down, up and down, everybody seems to sell cars in this area, I forget what it's called now, but um, 
So I'm literally legging it up and down the side of the highway, <laughs> going into every car yard. What's that? How much is it? Our budget was very, very limited. And, uh, but the concept you see, when you're saying, well, why don't you just buy a car in your local area? We live in Nova Scotia, so there's a lot of salt on the roads and there's a lot of salt in the ocean that ends up in the air around here. So every truck from, you know, anything before 2010 is just a mess. I actually ended up driving um, a thousand kilometers. I drove right to the far end of Nova Scotia to Cape Breton, 500 kilometers to go and see this truck, which was described as a mint body and a great interior. I saw the pictures, I got all the details. I got there, I got out of the car, I knelt on the ground next to the truck and looked up at the chassis and it had great big holes in it. I turned to the guy and said, why are you just honest about the condition of the car? I've driven this entire way to, for, for nothing. And he looked at me and went, mm, well, whatever. And I didn't even hear the rest of it. I got back in the car, turned straight around and drove 500 kilometers home again. And that's when I was like, okay, I'm buying something from Florida, which I know is gonna be dry. And then you can buy an older vehicle and uh, the clever, th there is a little bit of thought in this, as some of my plans do have, which is the fact that um, you can uh, import a car from the US to Canada as, uh, without too much um, penalty uh, if it was built before 2003. So, uh-huh, this is where the plan came from, right? So anyway, I'm running up and down this highway like, oh my God, like this is gonna be bad. You know, there's no return flights booked, there's no nothing. And then I spy this little green truck. Now. I am new to North America. I don't have any uh, idea of what anything is, but I had an idea that I wanted a pickup truck and I knew that I wanted to have something that had both uh, you know, seats in the front and, and that extra cab, that, uh, that uh, back row of seats. For those that are in Europe, this idea of a full-size truck is still a little bit alien. Pickups have just a bench seat or two seats at the front, but as everyone from North America knows, you can have a full-size truck where you can get like five people, or if you've got a bench seat in the front, six people in, and still have a, a bed out the back. So this thing I had spied was a uh, metallic green Chevy Avalanche, and it had, um, I don't know, like 138,000 miles on it, something like that. So the mileage wasn't too bad for what it was, but underneath it's just immaculate. And the price was, you negotiate, I can negotiate it down. So, haha, now, we, <laughs> now we're not going to Miami to get an F-150. Now we're going to Miami to get something called a Chevy Avalanche. So you get in it and it's nice. It's got all singing, all dancing, all the bells and whistles. And uh, as you can do when you get an older car, suddenly you're driving around a car you could never have afforded in 2003 or whenever it came out, but suddenly it's yours. It even got a DVD player in the back for, uh, you know, my daughter's long since watching First of all, stop watching DVDs long past that. Of course, it's all iPad and iPhone and whatever now. But um, hey, you know, it's got electric heated seats, all the rest of it, air conditioning, bing, bang, bong. We're going to have this one. So we drove it all the way back. And that's really, I think, where the biggest cracks came in the plan, because my idea of um, go and get a vehicle and drive it back is go and get a vehicle and then drive it back like in one shot. You know, that's I think the thing I love about the sailing is that it's all about voyaging and being in motion all the time and, uh, and and achieving things and moving to the next point and dealing with things along the way. But that's maybe not that popular with, <laughs> with other people or more specifically in this situation, my wife. I do have a picture of her from that trip. She didn't speak to me from ooh, Washington to New Brunswick. <laughs> <laughs> which if you know if you know this part of the world is quite a long way i think sh sh her sense of humor had completely failed by that point um but we did get it here and you know I, as always my tangents i do return to the point it's here now and what it does mean for those who don't know what a chevy avalanche is um is that it has yes it's got a box on the back of it but it has a hard tonneau cover on the back of it and i have discovered that this is a very very useful thing for some of the activities I need to be involved in because like when we've got the open 60 um, yeah this is all connected you wouldn't believe it right but this is all connected together somehow just wait for it wait for it <clears throat> if we get the open 60 and we put it on a high cradle in the boatyard the tow rail would be 21 feet off the floor so what we did when we first started this operation knowing well me knowing that the logistics would be an important part of this is i had a guy come with a digger and he dug a now let me get this right it's uh, 
nine feet deep, the hole, and six feet wide and 16 feet long. So I can just get the bulb of Challenger, the Whitbread 60 in lengthwise. Obviously six foot across gives you loads of working space. <clears throat> and nine feet deep means that the boat can sit at a level where the underside of the hull is probably just at your, your head level. I'm, I'm just under six foot and I can, I can just about uh, scrape underneath there. So it gets everything to working height, right? But if you're going to be cleaning the hull or working on the side of the hull or removing graphics or putting graphics on, which we've had to do a lot of recently, then you're going to need yourself still have some kind of mobile platform to move around the boat. Aha, uh -huh. no, this is where the Chevy comes in. Aha, uh -huh. yes, you can just step up onto the tailgate, step up onto the hard tonneau, and then you basically have a mobile little setup. You can move all around the hull. You can get right to the tow rail easily with your hands. It's perfect. So I'm more than aware of the fact that the Chevy can be <clears throat> used as a kind of, uh, <laughs> I don't know what you call it, one of those things called like a scissor lift, right? You get them in, in industry where it's got like, uh, like a, a scissor kind of action extending platform thing. You can drive it around. It's like that, but it weighs, you know, three ton or whatever it is and does 100 and odd miles an hour. So what I did, see, I'm coming all the way back now. These tangents always come back to where I started. Uh, I got the stuff out of one part of the barn, but what I did is I shifted it all up and onto the hard tonneau of the truck, having measured everything and made sure it's worked. So I'm talking like desks and bookcases and, you know, there's a futon and, and, and loads of heavy stuff. There's no way you're going to lift it up. The, the second floor in this barn is 10 feet in the air. The second floor is high enough so the tractor can drive in underneath, uh, you know, to deliver whatever it's delivering. But once I got it up and onto the tonneau cover of the truck, which was a wiggle and a jiggle, not that easy, but I could do it. And then I backed the truck in. There's a little open area between the ground floor and the top floor in this barn, which must be about, I don't know, 12 foot by 10 foot square. I could back the truck under that area and then put a little board and slide everything up here. So whew, I think we're back to where we started. So I'm sitting here now in the barn with the results of uh, yes, a desire to create a space, but also a lot of work which came about and was, you know, relatively smart to use what I had in the way that I did and a lot of physical effort and a little bit of creativity. But I love the fact that it's overlaid onto this previous evolution of this space. You know, as I'm looking here now, look down to the far end, there is a hole at the top of the barn up there. Um, which there are birds flying literally in that. There are starlings, two starlings live in that top corner of the barn. They stop now flying around in the barn. I think they've twigged that. I don't like them pooping on things. Um, there are little holes all through the barn board on the side of it. And there's still all this junk from the farmer just, but it doesn't matter because it doesn't need to be perfect to be a space to, to create things. And I think that's the feedback I got from people with regard to this. It's about, creating stuff that's honest and you know from the heart and i think that's something that's um part of podcasting which i had forgotten i've forgotten what i get from it when i listen to a podcast what it means to me the honesty of the fact that um there's somebody talking and there's somebody listening and although we're separated by thousands of miles and maybe separated by months and years um I'm speaking to you, you're listening, and we're in this space together, and it's important that I remember that. It's not just some product. So if that's okay by you, this is how we're going to do this. I've still got stories to tell. I've got lots of seamanship things and whatever to discuss and that, but I'm just going to sit down with the phone, or maybe one day we'll get a... I had sat down this about an hour ago <laughs> with my... Um, lapel mic that I use when I'm doing the stuff behind the, uh, the table and, and presenting stuff for YouTube and for the online seamanship training. Um, and I sat here and I worked, got this nice program that allows me to really get all the levels sorted out and everything so I could record this on my phone. And then um, <laughs> I, started, I started recording it and the lights started flashing and uh, the battery's gone flat and we don't have any batteries and because of COVID-19, I can't really go out and get some. So I thought, you know what, sod it. If we're gonna be honest about this, I'm talking to you on a phone, I'm sitting in the corner and this noise is me having a little sip of coffee from my thermos before it goes cold. Okay, so what are we gonna talk about this week? Well, somebody, well, first I'd like to say a number of people have uh, written to me, which I find awesome because you, you know, when you do these kind of things, obviously I'm doing 
uh, I'm reading and I'm trying to learn as much as I can behind the scenes to to try and give a, a, a quality product. You know, we're still we're still talking about the fact that I'm trying to produce something and it's interesting to listen to and it's, you know, but I'm trying to find out, okay, how do I do it? And they are telling me you have to engage with your audience and get them to write to you and, you know, ask for a call to action, all that kind of stuff. So you think, oh, okay, yeah, sure, I'll, I'll put an email address and then, uh, but, you know, what I see is I record something, I see this little jagged little whatever it is on this graph thing that's my voice and then I go and do some editing and then I post it and then I I just see some numbers like oh I think actually we're up to point out two and a half thousand people have downloaded these podcasts which I find awesome but um you know I'm I'm putting it out there and then then suddenly someone's writing to me like wow hang on this is like there's a person on the other end of this it's real it's like and that's the thing I in these last couple of weeks where I was a bit away from this and I was trying to make it into a video thing people got in contact someone got in contact now who was it ah oh, I don't want to bust out from this and start I should have written notes down but somebody was in Berlin and they were telling me how much they meant to them then I had a friend from Toronto who's saying he's you know getting through COVID-19 listening to this stuff and real people like actually writing to me and saying hey you know I don't normally write to people but I wanted to say hi and I find that totally awesome and I know you're going out on a limb when you're writing to somebody and um and, and saying hi and what have you, but if you've got questions that you want answering, if you want to push this in a particular direction, just tippy-tappy something to me, like every single one of them. I tell you, the most inspired I've been in the last couple of weeks, and, and I don't know if he listens to this, but there's a, um, a listener called, or maybe he watches on YouTube, I don't know, um, called Sailing Starbuck. I don't know what his actual name is off the top of my head. I forget now, but I just call him Starbuck when I'm, I'm thinking about what's going on. And um, he was the first person to put some money in on Patreon to help me with this. He put two bucks in. I hope he doesn't mind me saying that. And he was telling me the story of the fact that he was, um, you know, he's not able to work at the moment. I think he's in the UK. He's furloughed away from work. So he's, you know, being careful with the pennies, but he wants to by himself. Now, what boat was it? They wanted to buy a westerly as well. A lot of people interested in that little westerly boat of mine. I keep resisting doing anything about it. But um, they were, oh, was it a centaur? I think it was a centaur they were going to be buying. Yeah. And, um, but he, he put two bucks in. I thought, Jesus, like, you know, what can you buy with two bucks? Like a chocolate bar? <laughs> Maybe. But it doesn't matter because I was so bloody inspired by that. And, um, Starbuck has, has been responsible for two things. Number one, I actually remembered where that name Starbuck came from, from, you guessed it right, Battlestar Galactica, those that know, know, and it's the guy that was the guy in A-Team, right? Templeton Peck, was he in the A-Team? Um, but uh, I went and actually started watching some of the Battlestar Galactica stuff, the new series, which is like, yeah, okay, I'm not too sure about it. But anyway, but the other thing it inspired me into was to redouble my efforts on what I'm doing here. So I find it, terribly uh, um, inspiring that people are contacting me uh, and connecting with me and that's why I want to re-establish uh, my commitment to what's going on here just by making it simple but uh, oh I think we're in the middle of another tangent there aren't we but what's the point here oh yeah that's right someone wrote to me and said <clears throat> um, could you describe uh, things that um, you would you have to take to see Th things that you have to take to see with you so that could be a bit of a challenge for a podcast, can it? But you know what? May, maybe not. Maybe that's, I should challenge myself. I'll do something about it on YouTube at a point in the future so you can see any of the stuff I'm talking about now. But let me, let me do that. Let's, uh, we don't have to make it the whole podcast about that, but things that I have to take to see with me. Um, well, those that know me will know that I'm actually a terribly sentimental person. I... Um, when I was little uh, and I was at school and I was um, missing my mum and dad, which, you know, kids do when they're uh, first at school, I used to take the leaves that I found in the playground and put them in my pockets and then bring them home to show my mum, my which I think had her in tears because I felt so 
so bad that I was away from her and I was seeing things and experiencing things without her that, you know, if I picked it up and put it in my pocket so I could take it home. <laughs> and I've got better, but I think there's still a kind of six-year-old in me that um, gets excited about some things and gets sad about some things in a very simple way. So I am sentimental when I go to sea and I do have some things. I have some things with me which are harshly practical, which I kind of have to have and are my go-tos. And we can I talk about that a little bit. But I also have to have some things which give me emotional uh, strength, you know, kind of provide an axle for me to rotate around when things are a little bit uh, off the wall. So let's, let's kind of break them up a little bit. The first practical thing I take to see with me is uh, my sailing knife. So where does that start out? When I was, when I was first a tall ship rigger in Hong Kong, um, it was the first license I had to, oh wow, as soon as I start talking about this stuff, I immediately start to remember things I haven't thought about forever. That's really interesting. So it was the first license I had to like carry a knife <laughs> and, uh, and, and it be like legitimate. You know, there's, there's a part of every man and the women are rolling their eyes here. Yeah, there's part of every man that kind of, you know, having a knife is good. You can, you can have one of those utility belts with a drill in it and that's kind of okay. But if you start walking around with a, a big knife, like people looking a bit strange. Now, what you may or may not know about me is that uh, between about 18 and 25, I think it would be, from starting to work out about in Hong Kong, coming back, going to the university and, and being initially in the um, Navy and then uh, going back to Hong Kong, yeah, 2005. So like it'd be seven years. No one called me Chris, they called me Mick. And that came about because one of my favorite films is always Crocodile Dundee. And of course the main character in that is Mick Dundee. And then uh, when I was out in Hong Kong, I had an Akubra hat, which is pretty close to Mick Dundee's. Mine wasn't black, it was brown, it was a cattleman. And, uh, but it just became, I just wore it all the time. And then I was, I was there working as a volunteer in Hong Kong and there was another uh, chap with me, another volunteer called Chris Kelly. Shout out to Chris if he's uh, listening to this. Um, and because we both had the same name, I, I quickly hooked into the fact that people who you know, were just getting to know me uh, saw this hat and they were jokingly calling me Mick Dundee. So I, I became known as Mick and that stuck and it stuck for years. And it, it did create a couple of funny things. Firstly, obviously, uh, at that time, my name was uh, just, my surname was just Major, not Stanmore Major. Actually, that's a change I made uh, myself later on, which we can discuss another one. I'm not, <laughs> let's try and stay on subject a little bit. But um, my surname was just Major at that point. I was going by the nickname uh, Mick, so I was Mick Major for years. And I do remember meeting a girl at university uh, uh, who, she was a bit, bit of a gypsy, I think. And she, um, I met her and she said, oh, what's your name? My name's Mick, which, you know, I've been introducing myself at that point for years as Mick. And she said, hmm, you don't look like a Mick. Now this person never met me before, didn't know any of my friends, it was a totally off the, off the cuff meeting. She said, uh, you look like a Christopher to me. I was like, whoa, <laughs> this one's a bit scary. So um, the, uh, yeah, but I was, uh, I was Mick Major for years. And uh, obviously in and amongst that, when you called Mick after Mick Dundee of Crocodile Dundee fame, um, being able to wear a knife on your hip uh, and working as a tall ship rigger was, uh, was pretty cool. And to, to give a little bit of background about myself, uh, at the time I went to work as a volunteer in Hong Kong, my onward path was meant to be, be a volunteer in Hong Kong um, and then go back to the UK and go to Cambridge and study law. I'd been accepted to Christ College Cambridge to study law. I was going to go there with one of the other volunteers. We'd been partnered together because he was off to go and do law at Cambridge as well. And it was all set up. But over that year in Hong Kong, working for the Outward Bound School there, um, <laughs> something, something either got fixed or something got broken because by the end of it, I was barefoot, like all the time, uh, shorts, lots of things around my neck that I'd made or been given to me, uh, this Akubra hat on um, and, a, and a knife permanently on my hip and I'd pierced my own ears and had a black coral earring, which is a superstition that you can't drown if you're wearing black coral. Um, like I was, uh, I was pretty out there, man. Like when I got back to Lancaster living in the UK, it's like the north of England, freezing cold. I was still walking everywhere barefoot. Like I was, uh, I was, a, I was a weird one. Um, but happy, I guess. But uh, yeah, the having a knife uh, is something which has 
became part of my life when I was working as a tool ship rigger and I almost feel naked if I haven't got one. Now, the knife I first had in Hong Kong, I think if I remember correctly, was quite a cheap one. I feel like it had a shiny, cheap metal blade, a little brass kind of uh, finger guard, and then uh, like a polished teak shaped handle and a, and, a, and a brass butt or pommel or whatever it's called on the end of it. And I think, you know, it was just crap. It rusted so fast at sea. And then I remember I had, <laughs> I had this little set of throwing knives, <laughs> which, um, which I thought was terribly cool because you could kind of use them for rope work. You could almost justify the fact that it was useful to actually have three thin knives on, a, on your hip rather than just one because they were useful. Um, but clearly what I was just doing is I'd realized that you could, instead of just having one knife on your hip, you could have three, but they were, they were made by, oh, what was it, like Ray Kip or something. It was, it was etched onto them, but they were actually throwing knives. They had no um, scales, I've since found out they're called, the wooden bits that go on either side of the tang where you handle it. They had no scales on, they had no finger guard or pommel or anything. It was just this weighted, like, throwing knife uh, and they're, they're very very thin and they just sat next to each other but then i remember that stopped one day when i was uh, i was climbing climbing the main mast on the brigantine that i worked on jifung and i climbed up and uh, the little uh, sheath that i was wearing them in <laughs> did not I did a maneuver, I ended up turning kind of upside down with whatever I was doing and the sheath did not turn upside down with me and two of them fell out landing quite close to the mate of the vessel and I he was Steve Burton, hello Steve if you're listening to this, morning sir, how's it going and um, uh, I don't know if he remembers that but I remember it because I remember quickly then we did not have the throwing knives uh, being carried around in the, in the rigging of the ship so after that, um, I'm not sure where I went to then but Having, being on a boat and having a knife on your hip is absolutely essential in my book. And I, I have a knife, which I think I showed in that video, yeah, I did, uh, about, um, you know, is this your chance to sail around the world? It's a Musto knife, actually, which I didn't know Musto's made knives, which were given to me, which was given to me by my friend, Austin Briley, who also did all of the electronics on my solo around the world boat and helped me get um, Challenger and Charger uh, up to snuff, ready for leaving California five years ago now. Hi, Austin. And uh, who's in Spain at the moment, I believe, probably sheltering away from COVID-19. So I hope you're okay, mate. Um, but he gave me this knife, which was from Musto, and I wore that sucker all around the world. It was, it was me at 31 or whatever I was, coming back to where I'd been at, uh, I guess, 21 or something, uh, wearing this knife. But I was very, very lucky when I came to Lunenburg, not to scoot too far forward, but um, you know, I got used to the fact that when I go to sea, I want to have a big cutaway knife. When I came to Lunenburg, I met a guy called Rick Marchand, and if you, you maybe you, if you know knives, you'll know Rick. He's pretty well known in the knife making community. If you don't, his website is called Wilder Tools, like wilderness. Well, it's Wilder Tools, and he makes the most gorgeous knives. And he's an incredible artisan. Everything he makes is, a, is almost like custom, um, beautiful woodwork and beautiful uh, leather work. And the guy's a, uh, well, he's a, he's a fantastically funny guy, but he's also highly skilled in his, in his area. And uh, we sat down and Rick, if you're listening to this, it was May, 2015 <laughs> and we still haven't started mass producing them. what's wrong with you? But we sat down and we wanted to design uh, a knife that was really, really like high end for sailors because you can actually, you can go out and buy some pretty awesome knives in sailing, um, but you probably can't get much further than the, I know, $120, $130 mark, which in knife making territory is nothing. You've only just got going. I have had such an education working with Rick on steel and what it's all about. And so I, I wanted to create a modern full size knife for sailing, right? So, <clears throat> We set to it, and what we came up with was a knife, and I'm gonna, yeah, I can describe this. Uh, I can do this. It's basically, you imagine like a, a, a samurai sword, but shortened right down, so you're only talking a blade that's maybe six or seven inches, but it's got that kind of cutaway nose on it where, you know, a sailor's knife obviously should have a, a sheep's foot end on it, which is completely blunt on the end. It kind of comes down, curves down where the blade is only on the bottom, and then it's got a, a dull back on it, clearly, and then a curved end that comes down to a little snub nose 
so that you, you can't jam it into things. If you drop it even nose down the floor, nothing happens. It's kind of like the shape of the end of a, a bread knife. If you haven't got one of those ones with a fork on the end, it's got a little curving end to it. And um, it's a bit like that, but it cuts back a bit more, this knife. It cuts back, it's got that kind of like, like the end of a, a samurai sword, it's got quite geometric. But the smartness of that design that he and I worked on and we came up with is that if you've got a Tylaska shackle, one of those snap shackles that we use for closing a halyard onto the top of a sail or connecting sheets onto a spinnaker or whatever, it will go into the finger release on a Tylaska shackle or similar or Wichard or whatever and it will pop that open. So it means that rather than having to have a spike, unless you've got a round gib one which needs an actual round thing to go into it. If you've got any of the ones where you can get your finger in, this will go straight in there and the entire front of the knife is designed to go in there on larger size ones, the kind of size I work with ones, and you can pop the end, uh, pop the end into the shackle and, and open the shackle. So it's got both the usefulness of being, you know, the safety of having a cutaway blade uh, on your hip um, and it's got this ability to open shackles and then what he did is the bottom inch or half inch of the blade up up near where you hold it it's got um, now he did tell me what they were called it's called it's Japanese serrations what was the word he told me oh no oh, I'm sorry Rick it's got these very very fine serrations not that kind of like big sculpted kind of cut out things like you get on those um, uh, is it who makes those knives? Is it Gull or Gill or someone? A Gill, the Gill rescue knife, where you've got like this, like a bread knife that you're meant to hack through a piece of rope with. It's got these very, very fine little serrations, which just, uh, oh, the word's right on the tip of my tongue. I can't remember what it is now. Shout a bit louder, whoever knows it. I might hear you. Um, it's um, these, and it's it, it will go through uh, a line like a hot knife through butter. So a lot of the line that I have to cut and work with is modern synthetic fibers, and a lot of it is Dyneema, some of it's Vectran, a lot of it's PBO and Technora. Once in a while we go through PBO, but when I have to cut through those things, I can tell you, they deaden a blade normally like you wouldn't believe. So what Rick made this out of, he had this tiny ingot of metal, which he showed me right at the beginning of this process. I, I can't remember for the life of me what all the numbers and everything are, but it's uh, what he described as a super steel, which I don't think is him being um, hyperbolic about it. I think that's actually what they're referred to as super steels. I'm told that they use it as like engine bearings on Chinese nuclear subs. It, it's that kind of thing, you know, it's, it's this cra crazy, uh, steel. It's incredibly hard and I, I know that that's not just him doing a sales job because <laughs> we, we got in a situation with Challenger down in the Caribbean where the foil on the head stay, on the, on the, sorry, on the force stay, um, it, the, the foil got twisted. There was so much force on the jib when we were doing the um, Caribbean 600 that uh, it was reefed, the jib, which is actually a reefing system on the front of that boat. I wasn't misusing a furling system. And there was so much tension in the sail that the line at the bottom which reefed it um, was holding tension, but the sail was pulling at the foil, which is a big meaty foil on a Volvo 60, as you can imagine, right? And it just twisted the two parts of the foil against each other and just snap them apart. Not even at a joint, it just snapped the aluminum right in the middle of one of the foil sections, which uh, if you know how heavy that stuff is, you can appreciate that it's pretty damn structural, right? And uh, we were stuck with this little bit of it, like we couldn't take the whole head stay off, it's like a huge job. So um, I thought, well, you know what, we can just, if we can just remove this bit that's on here, then uh, we'll be able to slide the foil down. So we got a certain distance through it with the hacksaw and then either the blade snapped or something. So I thought, right, okay, all right, Rick, this is meant to be a super steel. Hold my beer, watch this. So I got the knife and put it against the aluminum of this foil, which must have been, you know, well, it's a sailor story, so I can tell you anything, right? It was like a quarter of an inch thick. I think literally it probably was about, now a quarter of an inch, that would be, no, hang on, that would be six mil. That's that's not fair. It would be about four mil. So it would be, what's less than a quarter of an inch? God, I get so confused with this stuff. <clears throat> uh, three sixteenths, is that right? Uh, what a complicated system. It's about three sixteenths steel, aluminum. And uh, I put the knife against it, and then I got a uh, copper mallet, and I beat that sucker right through the aluminum, <laughs> chiseled my way shoom, straight through it. And it wasn't like a hot knife through butter. It was like, uh, uh, what was it like? It was like trying to push a broom handle through frozen butter. 
but you can do it, right? And um, I, uh, it did it. But you know what the magic thing was about it? There wasn't a mark on the blade when it was done. It wasn't a mark. I'm not exaggerating about that. Rick Smith, if he's listening to this, he'll know what happened there. And they want a mark on it. Nice, still perfect. So <clears throat> I love what it's made from. I love it's got that shape on the front of it. I love that it connects me to this history I've had of knives. And, um, and then the, the, the handle, if you're interested. Oh, it's got like a beaten finish on the, on the blade, which is pretty awesome as well. Um, and then uh, the handle is uh, this crazy like carbon fiber that has... Uh, it's got like copper strands woven through the carbon fiber. I can't remember exactly how that works, but anyway, it's got these copper fibers in there and then these hollow copper rivets that hold the scales onto the tang. Like, it's amazing. And then he made me this little leather scabbard for it and like, it's, a, it's an amazing piece of equipment. So I love having that knife, um, but that knife also comes on a belt and the belt itself is something special as well. <clears throat> when I did the solo around the world thing, I should have some more coffee here, I've got to clear my throat, right? We're not going to be uh, doing loads of editing. If we're just going to make this uh, a conversation between us, then uh, I hope you haven't got headphones on. I'm not going to blow your ears out with coughing. Hang on, have some coffee. Hmm. I can't believe it's staying warm. This is another great thing about um, doing this audio only. I am sitting in the barn at the little red table in the corner below the, the map of the Atlantic. Um, Got the light over me here, which is uh, salubrious and, and feels like I should be having a, a poker game here, although I know nothing about poker. But um, it is Baltic freezing in here. It is, <laughs> I still haven't got a thermometer up, but judging by how cold my hands are inside these gloves and how cold my feet are inside these insulated Sorel boots and the fact that I have a North Face winter parker on and a scarf and I'm still cold, I'd say it's probably about three degrees above zero, so that's Celsius, so, which is like eight million Fahrenheit or something, another crazy thing of having, what would that be? That'd be about 40 Fahrenheit or something. It's bloody cold. So the good thing about doing this uh, audio only is that I can just sit here and whatever I need to wear and not feel like I have to brush up and stand in front of a camera and I can sup coffee while I'm doing it so the belt the knife goes on is itself um, something special when I did the solo around the world thing on board the boat which the boat um, had been Sir Robin Knox Johnson's uh, steed for going around the world himself on board it I found a um, webbing belt which is of the sort that they use or used to use on tall ships. And when I very, very first went on tall ships, I worked on Dama Jersey, which is uh, for a brief period, which is a Polish sail training ship, a merchant sail training ship, which is um, the masts on that are 100 feet. Now, let me get this right. Are they 100 feet high? Yeah, they're 100 feet high. That's right, yeah. The height of the, of the royals, the four royals where I worked was like, 90 feet in the air or something it has three bloody great big masts on it it's like 3,000 ton it's like a commercial ship with three masts so it was old school um, and it had you just had these canvas belts and then it had a square buckle like you used to get on life jackets that you capsize this metal buckle one square through the other and that's how you secure it and it's got a big d-ring on it and uh, you had a short lanyard and you had a carabiner, didn't even have a, a twist gate on the carabiner. And you would climb freestyle up the rigging, like 90 feet up. And this is a proper tall ship. So you're going up the ratlins at the side and then you're doubling back outwards, like over going, you're going round an overhang, the futtock shrouds. Yeah, I know all the words, hey. You go up the ratlins, you get to the forecourse yard and then you get to the, the first top and then you go up the ratlins again, so they're angling in towards the mast. You kind of, it's a bit easier, like going up a ladder kind of angle. But then when you get to the futtocks for the fighting top, which is the second one up, if I remember correctly, um, you're, you're leaning back. You're like climbing up the, if you imagine a ladder against a wall, where you're climbing up the underside of it. So you go up the futtocks, then you're on the fighting top. And we would have to do that um, and then and then the next top and the next top to get where we worked on the four royal and all you've got is this canvas belt and you're not clipped on as you're going up like now we use shunt systems to go up static lines and all that stuff but if you fell you're just toast you know it does focus the mind but when you got to the yard oh you know so that's when safety really kicks in there was a metal strop going along the top of the yard a strop sorry metal wire going along the top of the yard and then you'd clip your little carabiner onto it and go out in the yard and, and have a life-changing experience, you know? But um, I found one of these belts on this Open 60. And there's a funny thing about 
life jackets and solo sailing is that you know, I had this life jacket, I have a spin lock life jacket, I've still got it now actually. I did wear it until, until the last time I did a, a proper solo trip, which is when I brought Falcon back from the UK. I wore it up to then and since then, I'm now using Timo life jackets from, uh, which is this back toe life jacket system uh, from this company in the UK. And I, that will be something I'll describe at a later date about another piece of equipment that I only sail with. Because once I realized what that did and how that could benefit me as a solo sailor, a short-handed sailor, and a, a sailor in a crew, that's the life jacket I wear now. But this, this old Spinlock life jacket I had at the time when I was doing the around the world stuff, um, you know, what's the point of having a life jacket on if you're sailing solo? If you fall off the back of the boat, what would you, what, what's your plan? Are you thinking that someone's going to come and get you when you're, you know, in the middle of the Atlantic? And at this time when I sailed solo around the world, there was no jacket AIS, life jacket AIS or life jacket EPIRB or, you know, PLB or anything like that. You just fall off the back and you're toast. So the theory was where you go naturaliste, uh, as the French call it, that you just have this sort of air of fatalism about you it's terribly alluring to the ladies i'm sure um where just if you know if you die you die if the ocean takes you then the ocean takes you but clearly that's a very stupid idea because it might just be that you're you know you stumble and then you, you die because you like tripped over a, a a line or slipped on a flying fish on the deck or something so i i realized at some point you know what i could make a belt that would assist me on deck and it's become a really really basic part of of what i am and who i am when i'm at sea i got one of the extendy spin lock um tethers you know with the clip on it that goes on the deck that you normally attach your life jacket and i put that into the d-ring on the belt and then i wear the belt and i am more than aware if you look at the online training i've just literally finished editing last night and released this morning all about fall factors in climbing i know exactly how fall factors work and i know that if i was aloft and I fell and I just had a webbing belt around my waist, I break my back, go into suspension trauma, damage my kidneys, like I get it. But I'm not using it when I'm loft. I'm using it when I'm on the deck. And the only likely fall I'm gonna have, remember on the boats that I work on, the it's you know the the boats, how wide is Falcon? She's nineteen foot six wide. So when I'm walking up the the um the uh what's it called? Oh my goodness, the jack stay on the side deck, um when I'm clipped into that i'm still three or four feet away from the side rail so it's not that i'm going to fall over the side of the boat i'm not really worried about that and mathematically i can't really get from the jack stay to the and i very much believe in centerline jack stays anyway if i'm if i'm doing stuff like that but um the, the the worry is you just slip a little bit and you're on your way and over the side and this thing stops you so i call it my deck assist belt and i'll tell you right now without uh, we're going to start selling them at some point because i really think there's a, a market for this in sailors as we know sailors love having you know <laughs> They love, like, they all watched too much Batman when they were young, too much Avengers, like belts and utility belts and, you know, I got a harness on and I have this internal little game I play, which is how far away from the Solent, or I guess you could probably say the same for Newport, how far away from a, a, a sailing mecca can you find a young lad with a spinlock harness still on? Um, and my, my record so far is, um, is Glasgow. I was, uh, I came up from uh, the south and I was getting off the train uh, in the UK, in Glasgow, having come all the way up from uh, the Solent myself, from Southampton to London, from London on up the tracks to, to Glasgow, hundreds and hundreds of miles away. And what do I see getting off the train? <laughs> like a 19-year-old lad, he's got his uh, thermals on, he's got his uh, sneakers on, he's got his spinlock knee pads twisted down to the sides of his ankles. He's got a spinlock harness still on. He's got white sunglasses on his head and a Helly Hansen like thermal or something on. And he's got a little rucksack. I'm like, Jesus, but you know, I guess I'm one of them, right? I like having a utility belt on, but having a belt on is useful for so many things. And I'll tell you the easy, easy, easy way to make one if this sort of thing sounds interesting. You get yourself an old style life jacket. I've got one here, which is made by, I think it's called Suspenders. That's a funny name, isn't it? SOS Penders, Suspenders. <laughs> it's kind of a funny name. I guess it's more funny for, uh, for a Brit because in the UK, a suspender is a, a woman wears a suspender belt that then clip onto the top of her stockings, right? That's the stockings and suspenders. But in America, suspenders are like the things, they go over your 
shoulders to hold your pants up. That's right, right? Like braces. We call those braces. And then the other thing is suspenders. But in America, maybe that makes more sense. Well, <laughs> I quite like that little label. I might keep that. Anyway, you get yourself an old life jacket like that. You know, you don't want to be using it anymore. The technology is no good. The materials are breaking down. But that webbing belt, if it's still in good condition, and you know, you've got to take your own uh, uh, opinion into of how good the belt is, you can cut off the life jacket uh, quite easily and reveal just the belt bit. And it's got a D-ring where you connected in your safety tether and it's got this square buckle loop thing that you can then easily get it on and off, but it's very, very secure. You get yourself your normal tether, nice elastic one with a nice clip, modern clip on it. And you know, and you, again, we are not gonna be doing like big leader falls on this and I'm not expecting to like fall off the, I, I still go to the bow with my life jacket on and then I have a separate clip which is on my life jacket and that's how I clip on when I'm working on the bow. I'm talking about using this, I've got it on all the time, all the time, which means that moment when you come out the cop come out into the cockpit half asleep and you gotta do something, that moment when you wouldn't normally have a life jacket on, I can still clip on because I've always got a clip on me. And it is in no way replacing a life jacket and is in no way an option instead of a life jacket if you're in any risky situation. And, you know, obviously, if you've got a reef in, if it's nighttime, if the captain says, if the wind's over 25 knots, you should have a life jacket on anyway, right? Because uh, certainly if you're selling with other people, you've, and if you've got a back toe life jacket, even if you're on your own and you fall over the side, you can probably get yourself back on before you drown. But... I'm talking about this extra thing. It's got your knife on it, which you need a cutaway knife to save yourself, save other people, save the ship once in a while. It's great for all your rope work and everything. But if you've got this belt on, it's got this clip. And all you do, you just clip the belt, sorry, you clip the, 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 the loop thing, the, the um, you know, the, what's it called? God, the carabiner thing, the clip on the end of the tether. You, if you, it, what do you do with it? You just clip it back onto itself and you just tuck the loop up inside the belt. You don't need to do anything more complicated than that. It just stays there. It's fine. It's no big deal at all. I keep thinking I should put some Velcro or something, but really it's not an issue. Just tuck it up inside. But that moment when you realize, oh my God, I'm on deck and I haven't got my life jacket, or you realize, holy mackerel, it's going over, or holy mackerel, I'm about to slip, or just I have to go to the mast and work here and I'm feeling a little bit, you know, cautious, you can just clip on. That's what this deck utility belt's about. And you can just build one out of a lot old life jacket. But if you are going to do that, not some super crappy life jacket. It needs to be good enough. You know, just the bladder itself is no good or it's stained or whatever. But uh, the belt and the, <clears throat> the knife and then the third part of the Holy Trinity. And uh, if my friend uh, Daniel Dagenet Gore is listening, it's not a Leatherman, it's a Gerber. <laughs> so if I ever did an advert for Gerber, which is a multi-tool, if you don't know, there's two big camps for multi-tools. There's Leatherman, which if you're interested, I understand Leatherman was designed initially by a guy that wanted to be able to fix his VW. So the original Leatherman, the way it works, it has the ability to do most jobs you need to do to an old air-cooled four-cylinder VW engine, which I have a lot of experience of because my dad was a, a boxer engine uh, expert working at Wolfsburg in Germany and then running a bespoke uh, garage for, for many, many years thereafter. But um, supposedly you can do everything you need to do uh, on a, I never tested it, on a VW with what was in the original Leatherman. I'm not sure if that story is true, but hey, you know what? It's not on YouTube, so I don't have to put up a graphic showing what uh, I... It's just, this is a conversation. That's what I think, so that's what I think. That's what I was told, bloke down the pub told me. So, Leatherman's are very, very good, uh, but if you buy the Leatherman Wave, which is very expensive, and I have been gifted on occasion by people for thanks for jobs I've done and services I've provided, which is a wonderful gift, but you know, very expensive. The primary thing about the Leatherman Wave is that you can move the blades out with your thumb without having to open the whole tool, which is awesome if you need a knife quick. But I don't need a knife quick. I have a wonderful knife that I've just explained to you, which by the way is called a Mako. That's the name that was given to it because that nose on the front, that's what Rick uh, named it. It's called a Mako knife. So if you go on the Wilder Tools site, assail Rick for where is the Mako knife because he has been off on many, many other projects since that took his fancy and took his attention and poor old Mako knife, there's only one in the world. Um, but uh, I've got my Mako knife. I've got my belt, which I've made up from my old life jacket. I've got my brand new tether with a, you know, the most up-to-date uh, kind of um, 
clip on the end of it you could possibly get but then I go for a Gerber and the reason I go for a Gerber if you haven't operated one before anybody knows me knows exactly what I'm about to describe now now it's that very cool flick of the hand which is the final part really of wearing a utility belt and and being on a boat you know you get your sunglasses on you're on this boat in the middle of wherever and you've got this belt and this clip and you've got all this cool gear be able to identify you have to do a little job and get your Gerber out you can hold the two parts of the Gerber at just a certain kind of tension that when you flick it with your wrist out pops the needle nose pliers and that Daniel is why I like the Gerber because whilst the Leatherman is awesome for what it does I'm always always I'm always if I can even speak I think my mouth is freezing up um, <laughs> I am always wearing a big cutaway knife anyway um, the Gerber is there as a go to which is the other job I need to do which is to be able to undo shackles um, you can use the needle nose pliers to pop um, uh, snap shackles if you can't get the knife in there you don't have a spike or it's an emergency but normally it's that pulling a line through getting a, um, a sail tie the where the, the little slip on the sail tie knots come on uh, gone wrong you know it's getting into things and pulling things and twisting things or getting the screwdriver out so I, I need the multi-tool but what I need is the pliers and I think um, the, the, uh, the, if I ever did adverts for Gerber, it would be something along the lines of um, Leatherman is always trying to bring a, a knife to a, a plier fight. Uh, I maybe haven't done that <laughs> the best uh, justice, but it's, it'd be like Leatherman, uh, always got a knife, but then in brackets, in a plier fight. And then the, the Gerber, chink, that's what it's got. That's what you want. So the must have thing which I have on me which is both utility and sentimentality for all the things that connect it to my history to my past that I described that and uh, I have to have with me at sea there are a couple other things which may be a bit more personal a bit more sentimental and I don't mind talking about that another time but you know we are past an hour here um, I would say that belt and what it represents to me I have experimented recently with having a, a handheld torch in it um, I very much favor those um, those rugged energizer torches that you can get it is not technical it is not fancy it is just an energizer torch with two AA batteries in it and uh, <clears throat> the reason that went on there is that we were actually involved in a mayday situation uh, at twilight um, off the coast of Newfoundland last year last year yeah last year and uh, one of the crew members uh, Ken had the uh, a, a light these people were in the water we didn't know where they were we'd heard they're in the vicinity we'd sped towards their general location and he started waving this little energizer torch around and I said to him I said dude they're never gonna see. and then boom what pops up someone's flashing a light back and they're actually using their phone thank god it was waterproof to signal and that little torch saved well saved their lives so i immediately got it a little case and i put it on the belt as well but i'm not sure if i really want that i should be wearing a head torch all the time but it is waterproof uh, it does float lens upwards and batteries down it floats in water i think hey it's podcast i think therefore it does i'm not sure if that's true actually but um it, it would be good if it did right that would be the perfect one where it's it uh, the perfect torch for sailing you can buy them and actually from energizer as well they're red they have little uh, uh reflective strips on them and they definitely do uh float with the batteries down and the and the, the torch up maybe i should swap my torch out for one of those that's a good point actually and then you could throw it in the water instantly in the event that somebody goes over the side that's a very good point i'm going to make that change so i'm going to get one of those little energizer torches a bit bulky but it doesn't matter it's it's useful and you get it a pouch to go into and then if anybody goes in the sea I can immediately click that on and throw it in after them I can always see if my head torch gets ripped off my head it's waterproof um, and then the Gerber's in there because you need the pliers all the time and then that wonderful wonderful Mako knife which uh, Rick promised me we'd be able to sell to other people one day <laughs> that is the thing that I have to take to sea so Hey, I hope that uh, you have enjoyed uh, listening to this um, as much as I've enjoyed doing it. I really love that I made this decision to come back and just do this audio only. It's so much, it's so much more natural. It's so much more meaningful. It's so much more um, just 
I don't know, it's, it's a better experience on this end, and, and I hope it's a better experience on that end. I'm not referring to things you can't see. Uh, well, I, I just spent time describing a knife, but I mean there's not like screenshots or you know decals or details on the screen that you can't see. Uh, it's just you and me chatting, and I hope whatever you've been doing for the last hour, you've uh, been eased through it a little bit by listening to me ranting on. God, we've covered quite a lot of weird stuff, haven't we? Buying a truck and <laughs> what I take to see and... Uh, my goodness, that's the point though, I guess, right? That's uh, that's what it's about. This time now with COVID-19 and uh, what's going on, it's all awful. And, and you know, if, if, if you're in a situation where it's affecting anybody that's close to you, my heart goes out to you. Like, it's just all awful. But every cloud must have a silver lining. And if there isn't, we must engineer one for it. And I think what I do see is I see people communicating with each other. I see people who are... Uh, taking pride in things that they'd forgotten about, putting effort into things like I've done with this barn, um, and taking time maybe for friends and family and, and pursuits and, and things that energize you and maybe getting back to your core a little bit. And if, uh, if, if this time now is eased a bit by me chatting away to you like this, then that makes me incredibly happy and incredibly proud to, to be part of your day. So... Here we are. If you want to get... Uh, the more seamanshipy type thing. If you want to do that, I've just started this thing now on Patreon. You can find me on there under The Mariner. If you want to support what I'm doing with the podcast alone, uh, that'd be so appreciated. Or if you want to turn that into learning something and getting something, we have this where for five bucks a month, pace, price of a beer basically, you can get access to uh, the seamanship. Uh, I just finished putting one out this morning. They're half an hour, they're in-depth, they're the full Monty with the whole studio and, uh, you know, a proper production value, not uh, uh, not not over the top because it's just me doing it, but uh, I think it's a pretty good job. And the idea is to create a series which is unashamedly granular and, and really, you know, gets to the details of things and really talks stuff through. And we're going to build and build and build on that to create a huge stack of content which people can access and, uh, and learn seamanship and, and, and get what they they, they want, which is access to this knowledge. But unless you've got, you know, as I have hundreds of thousands of miles and decades doing this stuff and read hundreds of books and researched articles, and all the rest of it, how are you going to decant that down for yourself? So that's my job. That's what I've tasked myself with. If you want to do that, go to Patreon. I, I had the opportunity to create like a complex, expensive online course and go through all of that. But where we're at economically right now, who can put out hundreds of dollars to pay for something like that? Um, it's better just, I'll make them. You pay me the price of a beer or a little bit more if you want. Oh, and the other good thing, what I did is I created some incentives to, to put a little bit more in each month. And that's going to be free draws uh, each year. And uh, you can win a, uh, a coastal trip or race or regatta, which would worth 3,000 US to come on the Open 60 or the Volvo 60. Uh, and if you go to one of the higher levels, you can actually win a transatlantic trip. So, uh, and that'd be quite a narrow group of people that are doing that. Although I've already got one person that entered that level which is pretty exciting so check out the patreon page it's under the mariner that's patreon.com and have a see what's going on there and yeah thank you very much for making me part of your day i say wherever you are right now oh i want to tell you something else before i go uh to me the phrase safe and sound has very particular meaning i write that at the end of every voyage in the log that i have written since 2008 Every single time I finish a voyage, at the end of it, I put uh, crew safe vessel sound. And then I sign it, and that's the end of the page, and that's the end of the voyage. And every single um, voyage, I try and make it that I can write that at the end. Crew safe vessel sound. That's where safe and sound comes from. So when I throw that to you now, I don't mean it just as some little phrase that drops into language. I mean it very, very carefully. Whatever vessel you are in now in these strange times, your house, your home, your apartment, your expansive mansion, your cardboard box on the side of the street, the good time, the bad time, the difficult time, the group you're in, the aloneness that you're in, whatever it is, I hope that you can keep that vessel sound and yourself sane and keep yourself emotionally and physically and those around you emotionally and physically safe so i hope you are safe 
and sound wherever you are and what you're doing. And I look forward to speaking to you in the podcast next time. Cheers. Thank you.